0: Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order, additional term supply. Welcome to the Connection, a weekly radio program where we share our experiences and expertise with stories of caring, courage, and change right here in Connecticut. Listen to learn about needed resources to improve your well-being and transform your life. Now, here are the hosts of the Connection, Lisa DeMatis Lapore and Ann Baldwin.
1: And good morning, everyone, and welcome to another edition of The Connection right here on WTIC News Talk 1080. I'm Ann Baldwin, and I am the president and CEO of Baldwin Media, going on 23 years now. And I'm also a person very grateful to be in long-term recovery. I almost got nine years, Charlie. Charlie. Excellent. Yeah, yeah. It's been a it's been an incredible journey, and I'm so grateful for what I've got today. So, Charlie Barber is sitting in with us today because Lisa demanis Lapori is taking a little bit of time off, and uh, Charlie is the director of special projects, uh, the Special Projects Institute for Innovative Practice. And so, we've had you on this program before. You're writing books. You're publishing white papers. You're just a hell of a guy, Charlie. Thank you. (laughs) And I'm so excited. I always get excited when we have other people in recovery in the studio because I feel like, you know, I can just feel the connection. And the connection that I have right here sitting in front of me is with Daryl McGraw. And why don't you go ahead, Charlie, and explain, you know, why Daryl's here. And folks, you are in for an amazing program. Trust me.
0: So very happy, Daryl, that you're here, Um, my good friend, Daryl. And uh, you mentioned, Anne, your incredible journey. I think Daryl will probably want to talk about that. I can talk about very briefly the kind of end or, you know, arc of the journey. I spent uh, one of the most memorable days that I've had uh, with Daryl. It was last summer, like a year ago. Daryl, after his journey, which he'll describe, out of his own pocket, bought a house in the worst block of New London. Um, It's actually a very, uh, the bones of the house are fantastic. I think it's like an old sea captain's house. You can actually sort of sense the seawater, you know, a quarter mile away, but it's a notorious uh, drug and prostitution block. So he got it at an unbelievable cost. And he created his own halfway house. Wow. Uh, Based on his experience, it has a great name. It's called Soft Landing. And I got there early. And Daryl came in with a dozen Dunkin' Donuts for the guys. This is all Mm self-funded. This is, you know, no government, no nothing. This is Daryl and his paycheck. And um, there were four guys there. One was a guy who had been in and out of, uh, psychiatric institution locally, but he didn't have a place to stay. The other three guys had gotten out of prison. I remember one guy had gotten out two days before. You could see him being overwhelmed by the donuts, because you know if you've been in prison, you're not used to selecting one out of twelve donuts. What am I'm I? I'm grateful take? to
1: say that I haven't. So, but I can imagine. Right. Yes, I you, can imagine.
0: You could okay. see him cognitively trying to process which one wow. to choose, and then Daryl said it's okay, man, you just sit for two weeks if you have to. You just take a month, you take whatever time you need. And as proud as we are of the Connection Halfway Houses, we couldn't do that because, you know, we've got government mandates and uh, service plans and so on. So it was just an example of Daryl's own insight into that process and what he's created on his own.
1: We should also mention, too, and Daryl, that's just a cool story, and I'm looking forward to many more, but you're also the former um, program director for the Yale University Department of Psychiatry. Um, Also, you've been contracted to serve in a number of roles with uh, DEMAS, Department of Mental Health and Addiction Services, um, you've got a lot of state certifications, uh, you're an addictions counselor, a recovery sports specialist, and a criminal justice professional, and you speak all over. So let's let's be quiet for a minute, and let's let you speak. You know what I like to ask people, if you don't mind, Daryl, and again, the conversation is yours. So what happened, and kind of where are you at today? So
2: thank you for having me, and Absolutely. thank you for um, um, bringing me here, and Charlie, thank you for your kind words. Um. So my name is Daryl McGraw. I am a person in long-term recovery as well. Congratulations! Thank you. What you got? Uh, How many? Um, my clean date is May seventh, two thousand seven. 2007. Nice. Um. So I, d- I recently just celebrated eleven years, and I'm really excited about that. But it also means for me like a bunch of different things. I'm in a recovery from a lot of different things, not only just addiction, but as well as incarceration and. and as I found later on to be from mental health as well, <coughs> excuse me. And, um, it meant that really mean that day actually means that's the last time I put a, a substance in my body as well as just the last time I've been in the back of a police car. You know, my story, um, has incarceration involved with it, which is why, um, Charlie talked about the house. We call it friendship house, the overall, um, houses called Friendship Houses because that's where I grew up in Stanford I grew up in a project called Friendship House and all the neighbors kind of did what did for each other and we all like looked out for each other It was that kind of community village type of atmosphere and I wanted to create that for people coming home so similar like what Charlie said you know um when on a wing and a prayer we started this project and um the neighborhood was infested and it was you know but through just being people in recovery and having come having a background in the street, we were able to talk to drug dealers and say, hey, we're really trying to do something positive here, if you don't mind. We're not telling you you can't sell drugs, but you just can't sell them here. You, you just have to move that down the street. And slowly but surely, you know, they moved down the street and then around the corner, we were able to clean up our neighborhood a little bit. Um, it, it was challenging, but um, I think that, you know, it, it all worked out. Um, May seven, two thousand seven, was the last time that I was arrested. Um, you know, prior to that, I had been in and out of the correctional center for um, and out of prison for ten years. Um, spent 25 years of my life using drugs selling drugs and using drugs 10 years of my life like I said in, in and out of prison on the installment plan i like to see the installment plan because I would go in a few years come out come back and forth and uh, Checking to see if the food was still gross or whatever. Yeah,
1: the food's never going to change. Man. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, go it's, it's pretty much <laughs> still the same. The meat is the same. It's no, still My own, dad was a corrections officer for years, and <laughs> we'll put it this way: he packed his lunch every day because he told me what was in some of that yeah. chili. If you want to get into details, yeah. Anyway. So, so yeah. It so was, you've come a long yeah. way, and you know, I like what you just said too, D- uh, Daryl. Is that? Um, or maybe you said it Charlie that you have that perspective you know you you come from a different place and you have been in and out of incarceration right. so you know in your professional opinion what is it that's contributing to this this issue that we have out there you know you, you touched on so many things that right. the connection deals with whether it's homelessness you know it's addiction it's mental health there's so many different different factors it can't be a cookie cutter approach to getting people off the streets and and back to being productive citizens.
2: I think that um, for me, and what I was excited to come here and talk about today was like the urban trauma issue. And um, for me, I w- I w- I'll go back a little bit. I was asked to speak um, in DC and um, I was called by an organization to come to a criminal justice um conference and they said well we'd love for you to speak about trauma and i was like oh okay great and they were like so what was your trauma was it sexual was it physical was it that and i was like yeah no and they were like so what was the trauma i said well i think the first trauma that i can remember was when i was six years old my mom told me that um we were moving and my dad wasn't coming my dad wasn't going to be coming with us, and um, not too, maybe like three or four minutes after that, my dad came in the room and sat me down, and he said, "You're now the man of the house," and that was. You're six. I'm six years old. That was my first real trauma, and growing up with that weight on the sh- my shoulder of being the man of the house, that was that kind of like that was a life changing moment for me. And growing up in this, we moved to we moved to, um to the west side of Stanford. And we lived in a um, high-rise building, 12 floors. But one of the things that stands out the most is that violence solved every issue. Violence, our neighborhood pl- was plagued with violence. So if you had an issue, if you had a disagreement with somebody, it was violence is what how, how things got solved. Um, and just really quickly is that I remember, um, you know, there were only like, there were 125 families and there were only three dads. Wow, there were only three dads in the whole apartment building, and um, one day we were outside, and their ambulance and the police cars had came, and um, everybody rushed to see what was going on, and we had um we used to play with these two twin girls, and the the police were going to their apartment, so we all being nosy kids that we are, we ran upstairs to see what was going on, and their dad had shot their mom. And I remember as if it was yesterday, and I guess their, their mom made it to the hallway and um, must have collapsed or what have you in the hallway. And her hand wiped the wall and the blood was on the wall. And nobody never came back to clean that off. So even though the police and everyone had left, weeks later that blood was still on the wall. And we would go upstairs. We would go back, and and it was stuff like that that made me think, you know. And it just a lot of that stuff was just acceptable, um, part of the way people did business. And growing up, watching this, and then probably around age 15, getting involved in drugs and in the drug game and everything, becoming a perpetrator, not only watching violence but becoming a perpetrator of violence as well. Because you didn't want to be, you know, here I am, the quote-unquote man of the house. I, you know, I was the only, like, I was the oldest male in my house. So I had to protect my house, and I had to protect myself, and I had to protect my brother. Um, At least that's what I thought at the time. So Um, becoming a perpetrator of violence and growing up in that world. So I think it was really important for me to bring this story to light because, it wasn't until I was asked to speak about trauma that I even realized that I had even experienced trauma. I didn't even understand that I was even in a tr- I was in tr- a traumatic state. And then as I did more research from going to school and talking to other professionals, I started to realize how the trauma was a direct correlation or relationship to the incarceration and the addiction and all the things that happened to me. And where I was finding myself. And then I started talking to family members and friends. And they were the same things was happening to them. And then I, I, I did some more expanding, expanded conversations. And I started to speak to people in prison. And their, their situation was the same. And then I, being a professional, having worked at demons and with Yale, you know, I noticed that we weren't having this urban drama conversation. You know, very few people were having it. And when they were having conversations about trauma, the piece of how growing up in these violent environments and how trauma was the norm, how this was normal, wasn't being discussed.
1: Well, it's almost like PTSD, isn't it, Charlie? I mean, it's one of those things where that's what you saw. That was your reality. And, you know, I'm speechless. When you said your mom and your dad sat you down, you're it. Six years old, so you figured it out. Right. But that's it, Charlie. And you know more about this than I do, but yeah. you're
0: not alone. And I think for, you know, tough men or whoever, you're not going to be talking about your trauma. Right. That's not something that you, you can afford to do. I remember you telling me about, um, you know, arriving in prison and witnessing a stabbing. Uh, The first morning.
2: The first morning, yeah. I remember we were at Summer's Prison. It's called Osborne now. But our first morning, we got up for breakfast, and um, someone had got their neck slit from ear to ear. And um, the guy was pushing. We were going to breakfast or medical, and the guy was coming by in a wheelchair with one guy. They weren't rushing him. He was holding his neck the towel to his neck, and the CO kind of was like walking. When I'm saying, "Yeah, he's not gonna make it," and we would, and that was my first experience in prison, like seeing that this person was like basically trying to hold a towel to his neck. It wasn't like paramedics and all. It wasn't that. It was kind of like people were just like he was kind of like, "Yeah, he probably matter of make fact." It. Yeah, it was just, and it, so here's this, you know. Um, another traumatic experience and when you speak when you talk to guys or you work with people that are have been incarcerated and, um, and unfortunately like you look at men as we as we talk about a lot of the guys that I work with at the house are men that are returning from um, prison and they're traumatized going into prison they already go in with their own trauma and then they're while they're in prison a lot of stuff goes on whether it just be strip searches or seeing violent acts or what have you or just being in that closed-in cell with just another individual where you cook your food and use the bathroom and all these different things in one closed-in space and you're expected to do that and like I said strip searches are common you go through so many strip searches now that if someone told me to strip I don't think how I, I might have to think twice but like wow
0: you so, Daryl, how did you go from numbness, because I imagine that's partially, for, I guess, lack of awareness was your first. Because, right. you know, we all grew up in these environments. We don't right. know what we don't know, so you just do what you have to do. So, so you went from kind of, tell me if I'm right or wrong, you went from kind of a lack of awareness to probably a numbness just to survive. Mm-hmm. And then, since 2007, and, but I'm sure the change happened well before then, the first interior change How did you flip the switch on decades of trauma to do, one, to have the courage to tell your story, to engage in this dialogue, to do the good works that you're doing now?
2: It's a weird, it's kind of a weird turnaround, but I like to tell it. Um, When I was arrested, and that was a very traumatic experience, you know, going through that. um, How old were you? Uh, the last arrest or my first 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 arrest i believe i was 17 18 or something Mm -hmm. like that um and remember uh being in job corps and like selling drugs on the weekends or something to make money so i can go back to job corps um but the last arrest is the one that probably sticks out the most to me because at the time i was i was um tased I was in a police chase, and I was really only just trying to get high, um, that led into me being tased, and, um, you know, a lot of just more traumatic experience, but I remember, um, after all of that, ending up in Hartford Correctional, Mm. and, um, a single cell, West Wing, 25 cell, and some guy came by, and he came by my cell, and he said, um, hey, I got a book for you to read. And I I wasn't a big reader, so I kind of laughed. Like, yeah, if I was reading books, I probably wouldn't be in prison. (laughs) He's like, yeah, but I just want you to read this book. And I said, okay. Um, So he slipped the book under my cell, and it was uh, Rick Warren's Purpose Driven Life. And um, I don't know if any of your listeners or you have read it, but um, for me it was kind of life-changing. And um, the book is a 40-day spiritual journey. And my court date was 41
1: days away. Wow!
2: So when I read that, you had to read it in 40 days. You couldn't just read it like a regular book. You have to read it 40 days at a time.
1: What's the name of the book again?
2: Rick, um, the Purpose Driven Life. Mhm. So um, I, I um, read this. So I, I did that. Once I saw that it was a 40 day spiritual journey, and you, you need to read it in 40 days. My court date is 41 days away. I said, God, I got it you want me to read this book and then I'll go home because I think God's a bondsman. Right. (laughs) And so in the beginning, I just really read the book. I read it and, um, you know, wrote a couple of lines down, but by day 25, I had been writing pages and pages of things that I wanted to change. It was actually going through this evaluation, this like personal evaluation of myself and where did I see my life? And by day 40, I had already found that I had found purpose and i think it's important for us all to find purpose in order for us to be successful and for me purpose was giving back and and using the story using my life as an example of change and from that day forth i had always you know this is this is this is the only thing that i want to do educate and motivate people to change and, and show that people who've come from where I've come from, who've experienced, um, the things that I've experienced, even though you've been through those traumas that you still can get on the other side and be a better person. And it's not easy, but through with help of mentoring, like myself and many other people, um, we, we're there to help. Um,
0: you And so you are one of the most driven people I know now. So you're one of the most purpose-driven Thank people you. now. Uh, it's, it's true. Thank you. I've known you for a while. Um,
2: that means I'm putting out some good energy in the world. There you go. Right.
0: Okay. So how, how long before that last police car drive, the 2007, was your reading that book?
2: I read that book and it's interesting. I wrote a 5-year plan while I was in prison. I wrote a 5-year plan and um just the other day I was going through some some of my college books and that book, one of the books that I, I had about six journals that I wrote while I was incarcerated and one of them was that and I started that in 2007. I I did that. I was I was like I said I was in Hartford Jail, so I started reading that book in 2007. It was through the time of 2007 to 2010 that I spent incarcerated that I was perfecting or working on being a better person so that each and every day I wrote I wrote even when the lights went off I I would use the exit light and I would keep writing on goals and things that I wanted to do differently and basically wrote a roadmap on change on how I would like to see myself what I wanted I wanted to be a better dad I wanted to be a community member I wanted to be a better person and how was I going to do that so I just continued to write and, and the doors opened and then Every time I had an opportunity to, to show up in life, I, I try to show up and be a better person.
1: You know, it almost sounds like the the steps, right? The 12 steps. Oh, absolutely. I some mean, of it. Some, some of yeah, it. You, you some know, you of take it, right? inventory, right? right? So you figure out. but, And, you know, it must have been challenging, too, to be behind those bars and saying to yourself, I need to be a better person. You know, because you don't necessarily have people thinking the same way around you. I can't even imagine what that challenge was like. Oh,
2: no, that was definitely challenging because I would go to, like, I always joke with everyone and I say I went to every A that they had, NAAA, whatever group meeting they had. And because I had such a reputation on the street that... Now that I was this changed person, I would be setting up the meeting tables. Or I would be walking with the counselor. I had this whole different persona. So some people, like when you're in prison and people think they know you, they thought that this was some kind of act or hustle. You just wanted to get the hell and, out of yeah, there. Yeah, they were like, "Well, oh, <laughs> this guy, this guy was in a police chase like last year. And now he's setting up chairs and meetings. I can't believe this guy's like, what's the, what's the angle?" But I had, you know, found purpose. So the angle was actually living this life inside and creating this opportunity.
0: Do you think, I wonder if um, you had already made some changes in your head or your heart and that book came along at the right time? Oh, definitely. Uh, So my guess is that there were some resolve that you had made up in your mind.
2: I think though, I think what you're and what you're talking about Charlie is like, I believe that your core, everyone's core is naturally good. And I believe that there was just this, a, the opportunity presented itself for me to tap into this good part of my core and to deny a lot of the myths that I was told that I was a bad person and I was always gonna be an addict. When I was using, I always believed that there would never be a day that I would have clean. I always believed that. I always believed that I was a criminal. I was a hustler. I was all these things. And these were things that I had put in my head. So it was about putting new things, new messages in my head that I had to live by that makes it possible for me to proceed today. And there's
0: research to this effect that for successful recovery from the kind of career that you had early on, it's really finding the good self that you always were rather than getting subsumed in all the negativity, but having that that focus on the good self and also this desire to give back.
2: Absolutely. I think that um, I work with a lifers group. Uh, I do a, a lifers group in um, McDougal and it's called The Way Out. And we talk about core and sub-personalities a lot and wearing the mask. And I think that a lot of those sub-personalities and masks that I wore in the community, those were protective. Remember I was at six years old, I had to, be the man of the house, so I wore a lot of masks for a lot of years. It wasn't until I'd be able to come in touch with myself that I was able to um, be a different person.
1: So we're speaking with Daryl McGraw, um, myself, and Charlie Barber um, from The Connection. So we've got just a few more minutes, so I'm curious to know, Daryl, where's your life at today? Who are you?
0: And let me just say, and we have to have Daryl back for round two, because oh. I don't think we've got. We're not done! right? Done. Oh, well, I yeah. could so, talk to you all day! So you, uh, you don't have to do it, everything in 30 seconds, but... <laughs>
2: No, no question. Um, thank you for having me. Um, right now, I'm blessed to be able to do some consulting, um, doing criminal justice consulting. I heard the word dad, and super dad. I'm, You're a super dad. I'm a super dad. Many, I think. How many three, kids you got? I have three kids: uh, two daughters and a son, and uh, my son's in the middle. And um, I think that the biggest gift is being able to be a dad to all three. But you know. In our culture, um, black men struggle the most. So being there and being there for him and watch at his sporting events and so on and so forth and being able to every day create new memories for them has probably been my best gift.
1: And what is your message out there? Um, Daryl to our listeners, you know, I'll give you the, the last few minutes. What do you want people to know? What's the takeaway from this? I know my takeaway is that, and I think you both said it, we all have a core. Our core is good. Mm. But there's so many negative influences. How do you get back to that core?
2: Yeah, I think that understanding that we all all are good and we all do have a good core. But most of all, I think that it's important that people understand that we are not our mistakes. You know, there's many people that are either coming out of prison or struggling with substances or mental health and they haven't found that core. They haven't found that path yet. So I believe it's important for us to give them you know, to 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 not give up on them, and to be able to be there for each other, and and so on and so forth, and that's 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 kind of the thing of of being able to be like, what did you do for someone else today? That's the way I wake up every day. Like, hopefully, me speaking gives someone one of your listeners, you know, hope. You know, I believe that we are all hope dealers, not dope dealers anymore. So Ooh, we're I love hope that dealers, and that's that's what we deal in hope. We took over our neighborhood. We said we're selling big bags of hope right now.
1: They were like, Where's it at? We're like, We're it. <laughs> that's great. Well, Charlie, and that's exactly what the connection's about, too, right? Is mm-hmm. is meeting people where they're at and understanding what their issues are and getting back down to that core. So, this has been a, go- a great conversation. Awesome. Very continued success. Oh, thank you. Very inspirational. And, Charlie, thank you for bringing your friend here to us, to this audience today, because I think we've all, you're now going to. Be a little softer when I walk out of here this afternoon.
0: Soft landing.
2: Soft landing. Soft landing. That's
0: the that's name of his uh, nonprofit.
2: Nonprofit.
1: Soft landing. That's fantastic. And we, all, and we need help. <laughs> you need help. Yep. Okay. Thank you. And uh, I, I think that's fantastic. And we'd also like to make sure the name of the, the book again, because if it changed your life, who knows how many other people out there's lives it might change. It's called The Purpose Driven Life A Driven Life
0: by Rick Warren. By Rick Warren. By Rick
1: Warren. Right. I'm going to pick that one up. Uh, and if you'd like more information on The Connection and any of their programs, you can go to the website. And that is theconnectioninc.org. Theconnectioninc.org. Daryl McGraw, as I like to say, continued success thank you so much charlie barber thank you for being here and co-hosting with me today it's been absolutely you you hit a home run with this one i Uh, tell you thank you so much. i'm not easily inspired i'm good at
0: identifying talent
1: (laughs) you are you are very good at that and of course we want to thank all of you our listeners for tuning into this edition of the connection right here on wtic news talk 1080